This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. I'm James Brion, a third-year MRX student at Columbia GSAP. I'm speaking with South African architect Joe Noero in advance of his lecture at the school on October 16, 2017. Founded in 1984 in Johannesburg, Noero Studio has built over 200 projects, including influential designs for housing, that have been internationally recognized through awards and exhibitions. Alongside his professional career, he has regularly taught and still lectures, and was director of the University of Cape Town School of Architecture and Planning from 2000 to 2005. Joe, thank you for speaking with me today. So can you tell us about some of your most recent work? Doing work in South Africa is a bit difficult because there's so much of it, but I run a very small practice in Cape Town of uh, about, at most, seven people, usually about four or five people. And we have a very definite policy of not only being interviewed for jobs, but interviewing our clients as well. So we have, we have a kind of funny... We operate on the margins in a way, in the sense that we don't do any work for commercial clients whatsoever, because I don't like them, and I don't like having to do work for people whose sole motive in employing me is to maximize profit. There's no architectural intention of the work they can get stuffed. Also, we, we, for example, do a lot of houses, private houses, but we won't build a house more than 150 square meters. It's 1,500 square foot for you, because we have a housing crisis in our country. So we reckon it's not right that people should live in huge, big Mac mansions when they're people living on the streets. So we do houses under 150 square meters. So we tend to do a lot of work which is social, cultural kind of work um, and educational. The work we're working on at the moment, probably the most interesting project is a 14-story-odd building in Johannesburg, which is an apartment building. And it's going to be the first apartment building built in the Johannesburg city centre in the last 40 years, which is great. Because people don't live in the Johannesburg city centre, or they didn't, and they're only starting to do that now. But it's an interesting building in the sense that it's on a tiny site, um, you know, 30 metres by 30 metres. And and we're trying to create a, a, a vertical cross-section of the city population in the sky. So we've got small studio apartments of 22 square meters, right through to a penthouse at the top of 120 square meters. And so we want to have young single people, young couples, maybe people with small kids, and people with a bit of money all living in the same building. And if it works, it'll be fantastic. So that that's the one that interests me most. Mm-hmm. Um, and the you know you, you you'd probably be surprised if you translate them to US dollars. But if you say take the smallest apartment that we're building, the 23 square meter small studio, we're selling it for the equivalent of about I would say 15,000 US dollars. So it's at a very very low cost, which we have to do anyhow, because uh, you know the kind of people who would be attracted to go and live there don't have a lot of money. So. And what I'm trying to say is trying to create a vertical section through the city and provide accommodation for everyone, but at the same time accepting that the state is moribund and it's not capable in any way of providing social housing in a decent form. And so we're just try- we're trying to do it through the market. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll manage. It's mm-hmm. a bit of a risk. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, the topic of your lecture tonight is, is um, architecture for a messy democracy. Can you, yeah. can you describe what your thoughts are on the relationship between architecture and democracy? 
You know, democracy and freedom are difficult um, issues. A lot of people in South Africa, and I would include myself, one of them fought very hard for change, which we got in 1994. And today we have a fully functioning constitutional democracy, although our country is led by a very corrupt president who is stealing our money blind, and we're hoping to get rid of him at the end of this year and elect a new president who will maybe do a better job, hopefully. Um, for me, it's, uh, when I talk about democracy, I've never lived in a democratic society in South Africa until now because I was born there but lived during the years of apartheid. I lived in England for a while, but I mean, most of my life has been spent in South Africa. So it's an entirely new experience and a very complicated one because I think in South Africa, we have what I've called a noisy democracy in the sense that everyone claims for themselves the right to, to a voice. Mm but it can lead often to very chaotic kind of situations. You know, for example, we have a huge problem in South Africa being able to define what constitutes a community. Who's a community? You know, when people stand up in a busy forum and say, I represent the community, you sort of say, well, okay, I mean, like, how, how are we gonna get around this thing? What's the community? What's its nature? Who do you represent? So it's a complex period we're going through now, and it's leading to a whole lot of great, very exciting things but also some quite complicated things. I mean, for example, I completed a museum, which I won in competition in 1998, completed in 2005, and um, it built in a very poor community, but with a rich tradition and history of struggle against the apartheid state. And the current government had built some houses for people from that community in an adjacent site, about 350 houses, and the houses have been very badly built and they started to fall apart. So for eight years, that community tried to negotiate with the state to have the houses repaired. In the end, they captured the museum. Said so the museum is ours, you built it for us, we're taking it over, we're not going to damage it, we're just going to close it, but you're not going to get back the museum until you repair our houses. <laughs> so that's the kind of way in which democracy is working in South Africa now. People are taking action for themselves, occupying public buildings, and in some cases like this one, occupying the museum. I got thrilled by that idea, if I may just say, mm. because they, the first thing they said is, this is our museum, you built it for us, and we're claiming it for ourselves. And I thought, fantastic. But then they closed it down, and I wasn't <laughs> so happy. But it's taken us three years to negotiate, and we're hopefully in the process of opening it up again soon. So it's that kind of um, complication that sets in in a country like South Africa. Mm-hmm. In speaking of agency and uh, users control over the space that they occupy. Can you describe your table house project for us? Sure. I think I have a very strong position with regard to how an architect works and probably probably sense by now it's a fairly traditional one. I mean, we don't work with project managers. We do everything ourselves. I'm really interested in seeing uh, what contribution an architect, architects can make in the provision of low-cost housing for, for, for poor families as architects, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a sanitation engineer. I'm not a community organizer. I'm an architect. What is that thing that I can best do as an architect to bring to it? And I think that the table house gets as close to that as it possibly can. It's an architecturally designed structure. It has detail. It's been carefully considered. It's incredibly resourceful. And it's the bare minimum that you can do as a contribution to people to trigger, stimulate their imagination and enable them then to take charge of the process. We simply can't build people full completed houses. I also don't believe that in many, many communities people need to have houses built for them. 
I think they can take charge of the process themselves, but the state must provide them with the resources and help that they need. So the table house is seen as a, a trigger. It's seen as the barest minimum architectural intervention that can be done. And it's worked. I mean, we're now building about 25 table houses and we're stacking them now up on top of each other. We can go up to four stories, mm -hmm. which is quite interesting. And the thing about South Africa is that under apartheid, we had a law called job reservation, which excluded black people from being able to do certain kinds of skilled work. Mm. So there's a, a very low skilled base in South Africa, particularly in our cities. And one of the big problems we have is that there's this huge growth of informal settlements, spontaneous illegal settlements around our cities. And people find it very difficult to build above one story because it requires real technical understanding and know-how. So in a way, the table house is precisely doing that. How can you stimulate people to develop vertically rather than horizontally and do it in a way that still gives them the maximum amount of freedom? Mm -hmm. And that's worked. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's trying to deal with the past, trying to offer hope for the future, but to try and give people agency so they can take charge mm -hmm. of the whole process themselves. Do you think that this uh, pre-designed starting point for a two-story structure has modified the, the culture of construction within the communities where it's implanted? I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, for example, the construction, we've worked very closely with a social business called Hands of Honor. Mm -hmm. So they take charge of it. I mean, what we've organized is that it's housing that can only be built for people who are um, employed because it has to be done with a low-interest, long-term loan from a bank. Mm -hmm. The deal is that the social business contracts with the homeowner, builds a Tafel Hersey, the table house, um, and, and then hands it over to them. And so they make a little profit themselves, mm -hmm. and the homeowner is not actually involved with the construction of the table house itself, mainly because the loan comes from a bank, the bank really wants certain assurances, certain quality of construction, they're lending the money, mm -hmm. and so on and so on and so on. But the cost itself is low. I mean, it's about $450, $500 for a table house, you know, mm -hmm. completed. So that's a, it's a very, very low startup cost, and most people can afford it. Mm -hmm. In addition to your work as an architect, you also teach and are involved yeah. with academics. So can you describe to us how one feeds into the other and, and how that affects your practice and your teaching? Well, you know, um, I don't teach anymore. I took early retirement, you know, just a year, two years ago, so I can concentrate on practice. I've mm. been doing it for 35 years. First of all, it's very hard because mm. I was a full-time tenured professor mm. and you have to run from one thing to another. You know, you give a lecture, site visit, come back, you do a studio, and then you've got to go to a meeting and it's really tough going. It's absolutely crucial. I mean, I, I just can't see how people can teach architecture without having a practice space. And I think that for me, I mean, I hope that I made a contribution to the education of students, but I've been educated, first of all, by my interaction with them. It's been fantastic. And secondly, the, you know, the opportunity to make buildings and then bring them into the school and exhibit them and discuss them with students and get feedback from students, sometimes very harsh and quite tough-minded criticism. But it's fantastic. So we really do believe that the work that we do, you know, we want to try and expose it, not to get other work, but for feedback, because mm -hmm. we see the work as sort of, you know, creating knowledge, you know, research and action and all that kind of stuff. So we do a lot of exhibitions, we have a lot of stuff published, but the most important forum for us is to show it to students and to, uh, you know, get response from them. 
I also like teaching. It's great, and it's nice to see students develop, but that, I presume, is what everyone does. I mean, that's sort of sentimental, hokey stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. What, what advice would you have for current architecture students moving forward? I would say go with the workers. Leave America, leave Western Europe, they're finished. Serious, go to Africa and go to Asia, go to India. That's where the work is. If you want to practice as an architect, if you want to sit around and fiddle around with a couple of bolts and do a couple of shop fronts and do a few bits and pieces, or go and sell yourself as slave labor to one of these awful big practices as an intern where they pay you bugger all, then maybe you can stay here and you won't get very far. Go where the work is. That's the only advice I can give you. There are fantastic opportunities in the world, but they're not in this world at all. This world's time has come. It's on its way out. There are other opportunities in the world, and there's lots of need in those other parts of the world. Africa's population is going to double in 40 years' time. It's going to be the continent of the future. That's where you should go. That's where the work is. Wow, very unequivocal. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, and we look forward to your lecture. Okay, that's fine. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with ARC Daily. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.